listening to Sass Mouth Dame's podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. Mildred Pierce begins with a murder and an attempted suicide. Thanks to a savvy patrolman on the waterfront, Joan Crawford doesn't jump from the pier into the sea, maybe because her character realizes that she's been swimming with sharks on dry land for some time. I think of Mildred Pierce as a woman's picture, but if it is film noir, the fur and the gun and the shadows, then it gives viewers something unique to the genre, the backstory. We see how a Glendale housewife gets to the point where she frames a man for murder. Mildred Pierce shows viewers the education of a woman and the biggest comeback of the Hollywood studio era. In 1942, Joan Crawford married Philip Terry, but Joan didn't need a new husband. What she really needed was a new agent, a new studio, and a new producer who believed in her talent. After 18 years as a star in MGM, where she made box office hits, which established the studio's reputation as the crown jewel in Hollywood, Joan Crawford scrubbed her dressing room from top to bottom, packed her things, and drove off the lot. Rather than settle for leftovers from the new crop of contract players, including mayor favorites Greer Garson, Hedy Lamarr, and Lana Turner, Joan Crawford walked out on Metro. She was ready for a change, a new challenge. Lou Wasserman was a new breed of super agent who gathered clients such as Betty Grable and Betty Davis. Wasserman convinced Joan that he could protect her interests and secure more favorable terms with another studio. Two days after she left Metro, Wasserman brought Joan a deal with Warner Brothers. Joan signed a contract that cut her salary by one-third, but it guaranteed script approval and the promise of A-list productions. Joan looked forward to a fresh start in Culver City. She held out for the right script. She didn't want to rush into a picture just because she needed to prove herself. And Warner's was loaded with competition from top stars such as Betty Davis, Barbara Stanwyck, Ida Lupino, Anne Sheridan, and newcomers such as Lauren Bacall, Joan Leslie, Faye Emerson, and Alexis Smith. Film historians note that Warner was probably eager to sign Joan as a potential threat to use against stars on the lot, most notably Betty Davis, who was often referred to as the fourth Warner brother by this stage in her career. Pitting stars against each other was one of the most reliable tactics the moguls used to divide and conquer. Joan refused the assignments she was given. A script for Night Shift had already been rejected by Anne Sheridan. Joan refused Never Say Goodbye, a comedy about a couple who splits up and then is reunited by their daughter. There were too many weak spots in the script. The studio even tried to put her in Yankee Doodle Dandy next to Jimmy Cagney. Joan told them to give it to Joan Leslie. Joan also said no to Conflict, a Bogart picture where Joan would have played the Harridan wife thrown over for Alexis Smith and then was murdered. Joan gave Lou Wasserman a message for Jack Warner. She didn't die in her pictures and she never lost a man to any woman on the screen. 
Eventually, the studio complained about her turning down scripts. Warner sent a message ordering Joan to report for work in the studio. Joan donned a glamorous ensemble and went straight to Warner's office. He heard the news and slipped out his private entrance so he could avoid her. Undeterred, Joan asked his secretary to deliver the news. Jack Warner should take her off salary. Since she wasn't working to earn it, she would forgo a paycheck until the right script came along. Jack Warner couldn't believe it. Had she flipped her lid? Who turns down a salary in Hollywood? It wasn't like Joan was idle in her Brentwood mansion during the 15 months or so when she wasn't working on a picture. She wasn't sitting in the tub eating bonbons like Crystal Allen, the character she had played in The Women. Joan may have been unemployed for the first time since she was a child, but she stayed busy. It was a period of great uncertainty. It was nerve-wracking, but it cultivated Joan's resolve and resilience. She didn't give in to her her anxiety. She stuck it out. Joan volunteered for the war effort. Organizations, paper drives, fundraisers, Red Cross training. She worked nights in the Hollywood canteen where her duties included prepping sandwiches and coffee, doing dishes, cleaning, dancing with servicemen, or writing postcards home to loved ones, signing her name for them. After she read a news report about children who had been left in cars while their mothers worked shifts in defense plants, Joan established a nursery to care for 50 children. Joan lost her household staff, whether because she couldn't afford to pay them or they went on to more lucrative wartime jobs. As a result, Joan took over running the Brentwood Mansion. She started a victory garden. She packed lunches for Phil Terry, who was at first under contract with RKO and then went into munitions factory work. Finances were stretched thin for Joan without a salary coming in. She was the breadwinner for a husband and two kids without earning a crust. Joan felt her career and position in Hollywood slipping away. Invitations dwindled. The phone didn't ring. She was yesterday's news. In an article he penned for Photoplay magazine in 1947, Jerry Wald recalled the day he met the studio's new star. Wald had expected a glamour queen, a clothes horse. Joan had a reputation in the studio at the time for being high-hat and temperamental. When they met, Wald saw something else. He had already seen all of Joan's pictures. He said, I looked at that pulse-speeding face and figure, and I thought, here's a great dramatic actress. He also saw a chance to boost his own career. Wald admitted in the article that he had been associated with producing men's pictures. Once you're pigeonholed, he wrote, it's the beginning of death in Hollywood. Wald had produced Objective Burma, Destination Tokyo, and Pride of the Marines, but they had no women in the cast or a limited number. Wald felt he had reached a creative stalemate. Just imagine a Hollywood producer today complaining about having to do stories that featured nothing but men. Wald noted that the minute he started telling people that he was doing a woman's picture and he was starring Joan Crawford, the general reaction was that he was the fool of the most exaggerated variety. 
Despite the rosy picture that Wald paints for photoplay, the time lapse between when they first met and when he offered her Mildred Pierce was significant. Joan didn't just waltz in and get first crack at the script. The studio had taken time to develop the script after Wald held had the studio purchase the rights in 1941 for a reported $15,000 from James M. Kane. At least eight writers had a crack at the script, including William Faulkner. But Catherine Turney made the largest contribution to the story. Turney explained that Jack Warner hired a few women to write for stars, such as Betty Davis, Barbara Stanwyck, and Ida Lupino, but that the boss was not exactly thrilled about having women in the job and looked at them as a necessary evil. Women screenwriters and Warners never made as much money as the men on staff. And Turney knew it was an opening made possible only because so many men had gone off to fight in the war and women stars ruled the box office. During lunch, writers would talk shop. If a man asked Turney what she was working on, he would answer his own question and say, oh, that's right, a woman's picture with an air of boredom or dismissal or bemusement. But she noted those women's pictures made a big profit, and the men couldn't laugh at that. Turney developed changes from the novel that Jerry Wald felt would add dimension to the screen adaptation. And Wald also hoped the revisions would appease the censors from the brain office, who felt the novel contained unsavory depictions of adultery that made it unsuitable for American audiences. Turney's version of the script added the murder that opens the picture and the flashback that frames the story, neither of which are included in Kane's novel. Turney didn't agree with certain changes that Wald asked for, though. She didn't think the murder was necessary or that it really, you know, added anything to Mildred's story. Also, in the novel, Vita is a successful opera singer. Turney felt that Vita's talent made viewers understand Mildred's devotion. But Wald insisted on changing the story by putting Vita on stage in the waterfront dive owned by Wally Fay. Once Turney finished the script, it sat on the shelf in Jerry Wald's office. Betty Davis had the right of first refusal of any A pictures in the studio. She passed on Mildred Pierce. And Sheridan turned it down because she said Mildred was too tough and that daughter was an absolute horror. Barbara Stanwyck said in a late interview that she lobbied to get Mildred because she felt she was connected to the character. She knew her, understood her. Michael Curtiz argued for Barbara Stanwyck. He refused to consider Joan, complaining, with her high-hat airs and her goddamn shoulder pads, she's a has-been. Jerry Walt held out for Joan. To appease the irascible director, Joan offered to test for Mildred. Here she was, a star since the silent era, yet she was willing to do anything to prove she was right for the part, and Curtiz could hardly say no to a test. Martin Juro was a lawyer turned agent at the time who later built a career as an executive producer. And he remembers being in Jack Warner's office the day that Joan Crawford arrived to do the screen test for Mildred Pierce. Juro looked out the window and saw Joan walking across the lot alone with her head down. 
Juro said to Jack Warner they should go down and meet her, escort her upstairs to Warner's office. Warner sneered and he didn't move. Juro instead went down and met Joan at the bottom of the stairs. He recalled that when she saw him, that head came up, her eyes glistened, and she strutted up to Jack Warner's office. After so many years in front of the camera, Joan needed a little kindness, some recognition that for a star of her magnitude, she was in a humble position. Director Michael Curtiz wept during Joan's screen test. And that was it. Joan was cast. When production started in December 1944, Catherine Turney was working on the script for A Stolen Life, a Betty Davis picture, and she was unavailable to work on Mildred Pierce. Renald McDougall, who formerly wrote for radio, stepped in to make revisions, and ultimately, McDougall took sole credit for the script of Mildred Pierce. Turney's agent had advised that a shared script credit looked kind of cheesy and lacked prestige for her. Turney would regret following that advice when award season came around. Joan was relieved to have a picture to work on and offered to test with a 30 potential Vitas. Benita Granville, Virginia Weedler, and Martha Vickers were considered to play the part of Mildred's daughter. Jerry Wald had even floated the idea of testing Shirley Temple for the part. The director balked at the idea. Curtis sarcastically asked if they would then cast Mickey Rooney to play Monty. Shirley Temple never had the chance to make a test. Once Anne Blythe auditioned, she won the role. Joan coached the young star throughout the production. Wald had hoped to sign Ralph Bellamy to play Burt Pierce, but the studio settled on Bruce Bennett, who was already under contract and who honestly brought more of an edge to the role of Mildred's philandering husband. The picture had a rocky start. Curtis complained that Joan was trying to be more glamorous than her character ought to be. He didn't want Joan to look like an actress. She should look like a woman who lives in the suburbs who wore dresses off the rack. Jerry Wald noted that Joan cinched the apron strings at her waist, trying to get a more flattering silhouette from the cheap dresses. During the first week of the shoot, Joan arrived on set in full makeup and an elaborate hairstyle. Curtis wiped the red lipstick off with his fist. Joan was shaken and upset. For 18 years, she had been with Louis B. Mayer, who believed that stars should always look beautiful, no matter what happened on screen. Full glamour makeup was the natural order of the day in Metro, and Joan was just being true to her training as a film star. On another occasion, during costume tests, Curtis accused her of wearing those goddamn Adrian shoulder pads and ripped her dress open from her shoulder to her waist. Joan informed the enraged director that the dress was off the rack from Sears and the shoulders were her own. Cinematographer Ernie Haller initially scoffed at her star image. He didn't want to hear about her best lighting or angles. Joan recalled that in MGM, everything was flooded in light no matter what they were shooting. But Ernie Haller's script was annotated with notes about where he wanted to put the shadows. Shadows were new for Joan, and she worried about them. Jerry Wald tried to keep the peace. 
And then after about two weeks, everyone settled down to the work. The Heart as Nails director realized that Joan's talent and work ethic were incomparable. She would do whatever was necessary to make it a good picture. Ernie Haller also became a Crawford convert. Joan was always on time, letter perfect on her lines. She never complained about how late they worked. She was in the studio every day from five in the morning to half seven at night. She was cooperative, friendly, and generous with cast and crew. She learned the names of all crew members and arranged for cake and little gifts for their birthdays or special occasions. She didn't act like a star on the set. She was just part of the team. Publicists began the Oscars campaign by the third week of production. Men such as Warren Cowan, Henry Rogers, and John Mitchell wrote items for the press such as, The front office at Warner Brothers is jumping with glee over the early rushes of Joan Crawford and Mildred Pierce. They say she's sure to be nominated for an Oscar this year. Warner Publicist developed a strategy that's still repeated today for the Oscars race. They dropped items and created a steady buzz for Joan that gained the attention of Academy voters and cinema patrons. Studio press agents noted that Hedda Hopper was the first to pick up the item and printed it without even taking time to ring the studio and confirm that it was so with the front office. Hedda was an old friend of Jones, who had also been under contract in Metro during the silent film era. As a savvy journalist, Hedda recognized the public appeal of a comeback story. In July 1945, months before the film's release, Hedda devoted a column to a career retrospective of the Crawford she had known over the years. In a clear case of Oscar bait, Hedda declared, Joan Crawford has always spelled Hollywood. Joan's longevity on the screen depended on her flexibility as a performer. Each time she had embodied a type, she reinvented herself. Corrine, Hey Hey Girl, Flapper, Hoofer, Shop Girl, Clothes Horse. She was ready to begin her next phase as queen of melodrama. At a press luncheon, the director boasted about his approach during the shoot. He decided that if he was working with a tough star, he would be tougher. He turned down Joan's suggestions and let her know who was boss. But then he praised the star's work ethic and publicly declared his love for Joan. Joan, in turn, presented Curtis with a large Adrian-style pair of shoulder pads. Mildred Pierce showcases the best elements of the studio era, where cast and crew were firing on all cylinders. Curtis was fresh off his Oscar win for Casablanca. Ernie Holler's cinematography became a landmark in the noir style. The supporting cast couldn't have been improved. Anne Blythe, Jack Carson, Zachary Scott, and Eve Arden give outstanding performances. Joan's only complaint from her, her experience on Mildred Pierce was with the wardrobe department. Joan summed it up, no Adrian, I looked crummy through the whole thing. Joan has always been her harshest critic, but I do agree that the fit on the acid green skirt suit lets her down. The Milo Anderson suit she wears under the fur jacket in that climax scene has sleeves that are too long and are cut too wide. 
The fabric belt tied at the waist there is rather limp for what the character needs in that dramatic moment. But Joan's wardrobe speaks volumes and drops little clues that embellish the story and her character. The house dress, accented with a Mexican serape pattern, links to the Spanish-style home on Corvallis Street. The wheat stalk brooch symbolizes her connection to flour and baking that gave her the start in business. The lobster brooch is a showstopper, connecting Mildred with both the restaurant industry and the beach house in Santa Monica. Mildred's shamrock pattern frock underscores her luck in a franchise business. And the suits match an upwardly mobile woman trying to make her way in a man's world. And the cherry on top is the Fitch jacket with matching hat and cuffs and on her gloves. Mildred exhibits bulletproof style. During the flashback scene in Mildred Pierce, Joan Crawford's character is like one of the cakes she bakes for the neighbors. She's domestic, decorative, and made for other people's pleasure. She's an entirely different woman by the time she walks down the pier. Mildred puts her hand on the rail and is about to leap into the sea until a cop walks by and talks her out of it, and she walks away. Mildred, as I said before, realizes she's been swimming with sharks all along. One of them is her own daughter. We've seen the likes of Vita before in Depression-era woman's pictures. Well, that's that. I'm sorry this had to happen. Sorry for the boy. He seemed very nice. Oh, Ted's all right, really. <laughs> Did you see the look on his face when we told him he was going to be a father? <laughs> I wish you wouldn't joke about it. Mother, you're a scream. Really, you are. The next thing I know, you'll be knitting little garments. I don't see anything <laughs> so ridiculous about that. If I were you, I'd save myself the trouble. You're not going to have a baby? At this stage, it's a matter of opinion. And in my opinion, I'm going to have a baby. I can always be mistaken. How could you do such a thing? How could you? I got the money, didn't I? Oh, I see. I'll have to give Wally part of it to keep him quiet, but there's enough left for me. Money. That's what you live for, isn't it? You'd do anything for money, wouldn't you? Even blackmail. Oh, grow up. I've never denied you anything. Anything money could buy, I've given you. But that wasn't enough, was it? All right, Vita, from now on, things are going to be different. I'll say they're going to be different. Why do you think I went to all this trouble? Why do you think I want money so badly? All right, why? Are you sure you want to know? Yes. Then I'll tell you. With this money, I can get away from you. Vita. From you and your chickens and your pies and your kitchens and everything that smells of grease. I can get away from this shack with its cheap furniture and this town and its dollar days and its women that wear uniforms and its men that wear overalls. Vita, I think I'm really seeing you for the first time in my life and you're cheap and horrible. You think just because you made a little money you can get a new hairdo and some expensive clothes and turn yourself into a lady. But you can't because you'll never be anything but a common frump whose father lived over a grocery store and whose mother took in washing. With this money I can get away from every rotten stinking thing that makes me think of this place or you. Peter! Not on your life! I said give it to me!
Get out, Vita. Get your things out of this house right now before I throw them into the street and you with them. Get out before I kill you. For example, in Paid from 1930, Joan Crawford broke out of the flapper typecast with a juicy dramatic role playing a shop girl who was unjustly accused of theft by an employer and sent to prison. Joan gets revenge by running a blackmail racket that's entirely legal. As a crime boss, she uses the smash notes from society men to wage heart bomb suits in court. Joan figures out how to use men's words against them and make them pay. Vita might well be the daughter of her character Mary Turner and paid. Vita works essentially the same racket with the rich young dope Ted Forrester. Only Vita goes further and fabricates a fake pregnancy to score a check for $10,000. Vita is a snob and a brat, but she's not the picture's real villain. Mildred could have cut her off. A few years of working in a dive bar would have taken its toll. Or Mildred could have given Vita a business of her own to redirect those entrepreneurial energies that her daughter had. Vita is a self-starter when it comes to sass-mouth economics. She's high-spirited, fearless, and confident. And I would love to know what happens to Vita after she serves her time. No, the real villain in Mildred Pierce is Wally Fay. Here's a couple drinks, will you, Tony? Yes, sir. When you only start to go to kindergarten, I'll bet you drove the little girls wild. I hope you're not sore at me about this afternoon. Strictly business, see? I mean, it might just as well have been you selling me out. You can't expect it. What do you look at me like that for? You can talk your way out of anything, can't you, Wally? You're good at that. In my business, you have to be. Only right now, I'd rather talk myself into something. You know what I mean? Still trying, huh? It's a habit. I've been trying once a week since we were kids. Twice a week. <laughs> okay, twice. Anyhow, I'm still drawing blanks. Hey, you never used to drink it straight like that. I've learned how these last few months. I've learned a lot of things. Like, for instance... Like, for instance, that's rotten liquor. <laughs> There's better stuff to drink at the beach house, Wally. Is that a dare? Could be. All right. I'll take it. You know, I like good stuff. Maybe this is my lucky day. Maybe. Jack Carson's superior performance pulls the wool over the audience's eyes as well as Mildred's. On the surface, Wally just seems like a back-slapping buffoon, a ham-fisted fool out for a good time and a quick buck. Mildred miscalculates and doesn't understand the threat he poses until it's too late. Wally Fay is a great white shark who destroys what Mildred loves most. First, Wally stole Bert's half of the business. After he gobbles up Bert's share, Wally drops by the house looking for Bert to sort the mess he left behind in the office. He's a sex pest with Mildred, sniffing around the second Mildred sends the husband packing. It's Wally who puts Mildred's story in context. He tells her, you gotta be educated, Mildred. You've just joined the biggest army in the world, the great American institution that never gets mentioned on the 4th of July, a grass widow 
with two kids to support. Wally's lesson as how Mildred should leverage the angles. Mildred Pierce learns her lessons the hard way. Wally not only makes a play for Mildred and then Mildred's share of the franchise, he goes after Vita. He exchanges a look with Vita over the champagne toast with Ted that says a lot more than just, uh, we're working a scam for a payoff. When Mildred enters her home, Wally is sitting awfully close to Vita on the sofa. It's the scene where Mildred learns that Vita is already married. The way Wally jumps up and moves away from Vita makes him look guilty. Then, Wally pimps Mildred's 17-year-old daughter on the stage at his waterfront dive. He tells Mildred, just before she sees Vita in the dressing room, Vita's been here for about a month. I think I know how to handle her. Let me give you a little advice. If you want her to do anything for you, just hit her in the head first. Wally claims to know more about Vita than Mildred, and then he boasts about beating up her daughter. Later, when Monty forces the sale of the chains to pay off creditors, he admits he couldn't help himself. Once he started cutting up Mildred's business, he just couldn't stop. Immediately after he steals Mildred's business, he thinks, maybe this is my lucky day, he says it aloud. Maybe he'll bed Mildred at the beach house. Talk about overreach. Mildred learned a lot about men, and her education cost her everything. In one scene, she looks at a stack of bills on her desk for Monty's purchases. One receipt is from Esquire Haberdashery, advertises the shop as Outfitters for the Sterner Sex. Mildred has been put through her paces. Gigolos are expensive. Once Mildred succumbs to pleasure, probably for the first time in her life, and goes to bed with Monty, she must pay for it. Monty isn't just a charming loafer, he's a skilled lover. He knows how to manipulate women with sex. The minute he senses he's in trouble, Monty starts nibbling on Mildred's neck. He knows what she likes. Zachary Scott plays an elegant scapegrace who can apologize for having limited means, just the heel of a bottle, but makes it clear, even during the rule of the Hays Code, that Monty never comes up short in the bedroom. His eyelashes nearly rival Joan Crawford's. Monty trades on sex the way Mildred did pies. At the same time he's making love to Mildred, he's putting the moves on her daughter. Wally and Monty pose a serious threat. The way Mildred navigates between them is riveting from first to last. Joan relies on exquisite underplay and keeps her reactions tightly controlled so the camera and viewer are drawn closer and closer to her plight. That Ted Forrester's nice looking, isn't he? Vita likes him. Who wouldn't? He has a million dollars. What's the matter, Monty? Nothing. I've just run out of jokes, I guess. What is it? Tell me. I've had a little bad luck lately. I won't be able to afford many more evenings like this. Do you need money? No, oh, no, it isn't anything like that. I think you do. Mildred. Please don't do that. You've been awfully good to us, Monty. Take it, please. All right, if you say so. But I'll pay it back. I want it distinctly understood that it's only a loan. Anything you say, just as long as we're friends. 
By the time the film was in wide release, in October 1945, the public had not seen Joan in a starring role on screen for two years. Since Above Suspicion, her last picture under contract for Metro, back in 1943, Warner's publicity office followed their pre-release Oscar buzz with a clever marketing campaign that continued to influence the way other pictures are sold today. Posters and ads were emblazoned with, please don't tell anyone what Mildred Pierce did to drum up interest. Ad copy also warned about changing the seating policies. No one seated during the last seven minutes. In an era when patrons could enter a picture at any point, in the runtime, and then sit through the next screening to see what they missed, the policy Warner's instituted for Mildred Pierce avoided spoilers and emphasized a dramatic conclusion. And again, it generated buzz. Similar marketing techniques about secrecy and changes to the seating policy were also used by campaigns for Psycho and the Crying Game to prevent spoilers. Everything was riding on the success of Mildred Pierce. The reviews were mostly raves for Joan. Thomas Pryor for the New York Times wrote the picture was a testament to Joan's talent, but he complained the story was flawed by a central character who built a successful business from nothing, yet was so dominated by a daughter who instantly spells trouble in capital letters. Pryor wouldn't be the only critic who seems allergic to melodrama. Florence Fisher Perry, the reviewer for the Pittsburgh Press, called the film pure trash, the kind that indulges cheap tastes, which to her seems to mean people who like to cry in the th theater. The bouquets, though, outnumbered the brickbats. Variety argued that Joan reaches a peak of her acting career. Margaret Bean of the Spokesman Review called Joan's performance of Academy Award Proportion a vindication for an actress who had been counted out by the American film studios. Photoplay magazine announced, Crawford fans, attention, your dream girl is back in her best performance in years. Author James M. Kane sent Joan a leather-bound first edition of his novels signed to Joan Crawford, who brought Mildred Pierce to life just as I always hoped she would be and has my lifelong gratitude. Between the premiere and the Academy Awards, Joan kept busy. First on her list of things to do was to file for divorce from Philip Terry. Terry was perhaps a nice man, but their marriage carried a sell-by date as soon as Joan realized that his ambition was no match for her own. When Phil Terry's option was dropped, first at Metro and then RKO, he was content punching a clock for munitions work. For Joan Crawford, the Hollywood studio system was the only factory she acknowledged. Even if it meant struggle and hardship, working in front of a camera was the only life she could imagine. Later, Joan explained, never marry out of loneliness. I owed him an apology from the first. Joan was gallant in the divorce, which was finalized in 1946, but she settled a large amount of money to dissolve that marriage. Years later, Joan confessed, I was almost destroyed financially. Joan had also risked being destroyed by Hedda Hopper when she gave Luella Parsons the exclusive on her split with Phil Terry. Hedda had given Joan the Oscar buildup from the start of Mildred Pierce, and she felt betrayed when Luella broke the story. 
But Joan was just doing what she had to do, which was play politics to get an Oscar. Hedda got over it and remained Joan's friend. Hedda was many things, but she was always a hype woman for talent. Newly single, Joan enjoyed being the toast of the town. She had more invitations than she could handle. She gave countless interviews. She dated eligible bachelors, read scripts. And Joan jumped at the chance to do humoresque with John Garfield, her next project at Warner's, even though it was a smaller part than she normally had. Nearly the first thing she did when she signed for humoresque was bring in Adrian to design her wardrobe. Mildred Pierce received several Academy Award nominations. It was on the list for Best Picture. Anne Blythe and Eve Arden were both nominated for Best Supporting Actress. Renald McDougall was nominated for Best Screenplay. And Ernie Haller was nominated for Best Cinematography. Joan Crawford received her first Oscar nomination for Best Actress. Also nominated in her category were Ingrid Bergman for The Bells of St. Mary's. Greer Garson for The Valley of Decision, Jennifer Jones for Love Letters, and Jean Tierney for Leave Her to Heaven. Joan fretted the odds. Metro had pitted Greer Garson against Joan from the minute she walked in the door. Joan had felt that the studio gave Garson the roles that should have been hers, especially when she got to the point where Norma Shearer and Greta Garbo had both retired. Those roles should have opened up to her first. Reportedly, though, Joan felt the most pressure from Ingrid Bergman's chances at the Oscars. Joan was sure that Bergman playing a nun was unbeatable. You've heard the story about Joan's absence at the ceremony. People either believe it was a publicity stunt or that Joan simply worried herself into a psychosomatic fever. Joan explained that Dr. Bill Branch the Hollywood physician to stars like Lana Turner, Spencer Tracy, and Van Johnson ordered her to bed once her fever spiked. I can't believe that Joan would have gambled the exquisite joy of accepting her Oscar in person, and it would have been from Charles Boyer, no less, had she not been physically incapable. But that didn't prevent Joan from being camera ready in a peignoir with her hair and makeup looking fabulous when the vote went her way. She was, after all, highly trained in the service of glamour. Reporters started gathering outside Joan's house around dinner time. And once the radio announced Joan had won, the press were banging on the door. Van Johnson, a longtime Crawford fan, was the first to arrive. Joan looked radiant when Michael Curtiz brought her Oscar to bed. A stack of 400 telegrams arrived, and the phone rang off the hook. Lou Wasserman renegotiated Joan's contract and Warner's for more favorable terms. Joan would now receive $200,000 per picture, plus she had guaranteed approval over scripts, directors, co-stars, and wardrobe. Joan's Oscar for Mildred Pierce ushered in a second act that kept her in top dramatic romantic leading roles for another decade in Hollywood. She was the comeback queen. No other star in Hollywood had as much creative control over the picture she made and how she looked in front of the camera for as long as Joan Crawford did. The following books helped me to write the episode. A Portrait of Joan, the Autobiography of Joan Crawford by Joan Crawford with Jane Kesner Ardmore, published in 1962. Conversations with Joan Crawford by Roy Norquist. 
The Divine Feud by Sean Considine, published in 1989. Joan Crawford, a biography by Bob Thomas. Possess the Life of Joan Crawford by Donald Spado, published in 2012. Not the Girl Next Door, Joan Crawford, a personal biography by Charlotte Chandler, published in 2008. Joan Crawford, The Essential Biography by Lawrence J. Quirk and William Scholl, published in 2002. Script Girls, Women Screenwriters in Hollywood by Lizzie Frankie, published in 1994. Michael Curtiz, A Life in Film, Alan K. Rohde, published in 2017. Thanks very much for listening. Join me next time for a new podcast serial, Hollywood Medusa, coming in June. Also, thank you to Tom O'Mahony for editing this episode. Thanks, everyone.